Welcome to the third episode of the Sports Map Podcast, where we are talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. Today, we have a fantastic guest in Tim Gabbett. Tim has over 20 years' experience working as an applied sports scientist with athletes and coaches from a wide range of sports. He holds a PhD in human physiology and in applied science of professional football. He has over 150 peer-reviewed articles and has presented at well over 100 national and international conferences. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me, Nick. To kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you enjoy most about working in sport or with elite athletes? I like getting people or helping people achieve things that they previously thought they couldn't do. One of the big things that's an obstacle for a lot of people is that they they think they can't do the training that you, you lay out in front of them. And then, and then helping them work through that, you know, probably the mental side of that, uh, you know, helping them see that they can do things that they previously thought they couldn't do and they get to do that on a regular basis. That's, that's probably one of the, the big things I like. I also like some of the, the breathtaking things that we see in a game and we think that's just freakish. Um, what most people don't realise is that they've practised over and over and over again in training. And um, so, so those really difficult tasks that you see on the field, they've, it's, it's not freakish at all. It's just something that they've, they've practiced and rehearsed over and over again. I, I like it when we, can get, when we can get someone out of rehab, someone who's been in long-term rehab and they've had to fight really hard to, to get back on the field at all. Um, so, so to me, that's, that's a real big win even before we bring the scoreboard into it. So when someone's had to, to they've gone to a pretty dark place and they've had to fight against a fair bit of adversity to get themselves back on the field. Hopefully they can get back to their former self, get back to the level they're at before they were injured. Um, all of those things are probably the things that I really like most about about sport. Um, you know, obviously there's the the galvanising aspect of when you have a group of people who are working hard together and then knowing that you've been through a lot together. You know, I like the camaraderie that comes with that. Um, you know, and ultimately, it's probably when you when you put all that hard work in pre-season and, and week in, week out, the discipline that comes with that, I, I like it when it all comes together on game day. That's the real fun stuff as well. I like how you were talking about with the guys coming back from rehab to sort of find that sort of element of performance after their rehab and that, and that mindset that they need to work through. What do you think are a couple of the key aspects when you've worked with guys in rehab before to sort of get that out of them and to get them back to sport? To the, back to their best? I think what we've got to consider firstly is that, you know, you've got the physical aspect of injury. You've got you've got the tissue damage, but, but there's a whole heap of other things going on other than just tissue damage. So rehab's a pretty lonely place. Even if you're in there with a lot of people, you're kind of in there on your own. And, you know, there's a lot of, lot of dark thoughts that go through players' minds and a lot of things that are, that are influencing their healing, you know, where whether they're going to get another contract, whether they're going to get back and get another game so they can get another contract. What I try and do mostly when I'm working with them is just try and clear their head if they can and say, look, let's just focus on right now. Let's attack this session like we would attack any other session and we want to try and get a win. Um, we want to try and make sure that we stay rock hard in the in the areas that we can. So we've, we've got the rehab that we need to fix up the, the injured tissue, but there's a whole heap of other stuff we can do. Um, you know, away from that injured tissue. So let's focus on that. Let's stay as rock hard as we can. Let's stay strong upstairs so that we can 
we can keep our fitness, we can keep our chronic load up so that when we have to, to go back to the team or when we get out of rehab, we can we can inject ourselves into the team, we're going to be enthusiastic and we're going to make a difference when we go back. Um, so a big a big part of, of rehab for me is, is not just sitting them on a bike for 30 minutes, it's trying to find ways that they can test themselves and they can still feel like they're winning um, even when they're not they're not out on the on the field playing because you know let's face it every every athlete wants to be competing they don't want to be in rehab so it's about it's about trying to find ways to keep them motivated and um, you know try and pick their pick their mood up um, and and they can do that through solid training you know there's nothing like a, a good solid session where you've had to work really hard to get a win in that session to um, to pick your mood up and, and actually bring your mood up around the rest of the group. So that's a that's a big thing for me. Um, but there's also the added benefits, not only the psychological benefits of that, but there's the added benefits that by doing it that way, um, when you do inject them back into normal team training, their chronic load is a lot is a lot better. It hasn't it hasn't tracked down tracked down too far. So when you inject them back into um, into regular team training, that they don't they don't really skip a beat they can go back into training and you don't have to worry about spikes in load because you've you've maintained the fitness throughout rehab as, as well as you possibly can yeah i always find the uh it's celebrating the little wins along the way and um you know there's always plenty of ways you can do that and make athletes competitive in rehabs now you've you've been traveling around the world a lot lately we see it all over the, the social media and america europe china and brazil and You've obviously visited many sort of professional sporting clubs and high-performance centres all over in these different countries. From your experience and going into these places, what do you think is the difference between the really great organisations and then just the sort of average ones? The, the really good ones do the basics really well. Um, that, that's probably the, the, big, the big difference. They don't, they don't get too bogged down in, in one percenters. They, they look at the big rocks that are going to um, contribute to performance and they, they don't they don't get too sidetracked by um, you know all these these new fads that come come in and, and go out really quickly. They they look at um, they they make sure they've got a good solid training program in place. Um, they work hard on their training. Um, they work hard on their skills, and they're they're very disciplined about their recovery as well. So they they try and they try and recover as well as possible after games, knowing knowing that that. That athletes are going to um, enjoy themselves in between games as well, but they but they they try and get as much stability and structure in a pretty chaotic environment, and I think that's probably the ones that do it really well. Um, there was one organisation that I came across recently, and and I really liked that they were probably more professional than any other professional sporting team that I'd come across, and their their general motto was um, the relentless pursuit of excellence knowing full well that excellence can't be attained um so so to me um there's not too many there's not too many professional athletes that i've worked with that have that kind of mindset um but you know that that was the kind of mindset that they had that every day they wanted to get better um and they were already pretty good but um they, they were just looking to get better every day and um that's that's the kind of you know, when we talk about high performance organisations, that's the that's the kind of stuff that that really gets me going. The kind of stuff that excites me. You think is there? Um, if you're happy to share, are there any clubs that sort of stand out to you? Those places you've been in the world that you think, wow, that's a, that's a good organisation. Oh, look, uh, the ones that stand out are the the ones that 
um, it, it depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for a building, um, you can go anywhere in the world and find a building, you know, like a, a nice gym or a nice offices. And and people come to me all the time and say, what's the best facility? Um, you, you know, that's kind of not the not the thing I look for. I, um, if I'm going to a place, I, I typically go to a really poor organisation. If I want to see something that's that's worth seeing, I go to a poor organisation that are on the bones of their ass. They... they um, They've got to work really hard to develop young kids because they can't buy the best player, and they've they've got very few staff, very few resources. So they have to work really really hard together, and they they're saying to each other, "What is the one thing that we can't do without?" Rather than, "What is the next big thing we want to buy?" Um, but if I if I looked at culturally some of the best organisations I've seen, um, Melbourne Storm stands out as number one anywhere in the world. Um, to me, that's I think Craig Belly, Craig Bellamy, and, and um, Frank Panisi do a tremendous job. Along with their their um, senior players, have done a tremendous plot, a job in, in developing just a an unbelievable culture where um, everybody's welcome, everybody's welcome in the place, and and that's that's pretty unique. Um, second, second and third, very close together would be um, the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. So I thought, as an organisation, they they stood out to me as as um, probably being the ones that that work hard to do the basics really well. They're pretty good people as well. They don't get they don't get too far ahead of themselves. Uh, the the players are all pretty welcoming as well, um, and that's that's probably the the three that stand out for me as as um, you know, off the top of my head, that are really, really strong culturally, and of course, there's a there's a whole heap of others that you know I could list another twenty, I suppose, really good organisations that I've seen um, that work really hard together, and um, and that's probably the the trick in, in whether it's high performance sport, whether it's whether it's business, whether it's military, it's 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 not so hard you can work on your own, it's it's how hard you're prepared to work with other people. We'll just take a moment there to thank our showcast sponsor. This episode is sponsored by iMeasureU. Used by leading biomechanic researchers, IMU is used to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. iMeasureU recently released IMU STEP, a dual sensor lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. Unlike GPS, IMU STEP focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two small synchronized high frequency sensors when worn on the tibia. They quantify the three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. Acquired by Vicon in 2017, iMeasureU works with professional athletes and coaches from around the world. If you want to know more about how IMU Measure can help your athletes back to performance, head over to their website at imeasureu.com and follow them on Twitter. What about you, Tim? Your uh, Gabbit performance has been um, doing really well and spreading the word of obviously all your past research and your also experience in sport onto other clubs. Is getting back to working in elite sports something you plan on doing in the future? You know, I spent a lot of time planning out other other people's programs, and put a lot of time into into the plans that go into you know a weekly program or you know a six weekly program. And but when it comes to myself, I don't I don't look too far too far ahead. I could I could wake up dead tomorrow morning. So um, I don't I don't I don't plan too far in advance. If I was to go back into 
um, you know, every every day I'm working with different teams, so I'm I'm getting a I'm getting a fix in terms of high performance sport and, and high performance organisations. Um, the the trick for me is being able to switch off them when I need to. That's probably a that's probably even a better question is how, how do I how do I switch off from high performance sport when I need to? Well, so how, that it's how not, do you? Well, that, that's it's something that I I have to battle with. Um, I'm battle, battling with it all the time because it's a, you know, it's a. It can be all encompassing. It, um, it's the kind of thing that at times it doesn't, it doesn't stop. You know, you can. It's not a nine to five job, and um, if if people want you um, at, out of hours, that and and it's an important enough piece of work, then um, depending on the organisation, uh, you, you might have to work long hours, and you don't get to switch off and work nine to five. Um, but but a big part of switching off for me is is just making sure I've got other interests outside of sport because if you think of if you think of sport, um, you know it's it's what we grew up on watching. We grew up playing, and it was a it was a hobby. Um, but now you know we get to we get to make a living out of it, um, so it becomes a job. So that the trick is making sure that 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 hobby, the thing we enjoy, doesn't become just doesn't become hard work. You know, as soon as it becomes hard work, then I'll probably um, I'll probably find a new vocation. In, in, in answer to you know, would I ever go back into sport or you know into a high performance or professional environment full time? Um, it, it'll really depend on the organisation, um, and it, it would have to be a, a really strong organisation that that knew what it stood for. Um, it, it would have to it would have to have a pretty pretty solid team in place that knew that there weren't any um, shortcuts to, to success or sustained success. You, you're going to have to to get there. It's going to take hard work, and and to get there and stay there, it's going to it's going to take sustained hard work and discipline. Um, and I'd need to have an organisation that that were pretty strong on what they stood for. They they that they knew exactly what they stood for and what they didn't stand for, and um, and that that kind of culture ran through the entire. The entire organisation, um, and everyone had those same values. If we if we had a, a situation like that, then it'd be no problem at all. Um, but you know, the, the problem with um, you know, you know, it's like you've got you've got standards that you've you've got to uphold individually, um, and then you want to make sure that that the organisation you work for has has high standards as well. So um, you know, you just want to hopefully you find an organisation where those those two meet. Where your individual standards match up with the the organisational standards, but yeah, if the opportunity arises, the right position, sure. Well, let's say that opportunity did arise, and the and the club was a good fit for you, and you did become, let's say, the head of performance at a professional sporting club. What are some of the key fundamentals you would install in that program? Well, I'm a pretty simple guy, so I mean, I'd, I'd be using some evidence some evidence around depending on the sport, I suppose. So if it's a sport that needs needs um, some some high speed running or some sprinting then I'm going to put some evidence based um, structures in place that allow us to, to build some robustness um, I, I'm probably more on the on the side of things that um, I'm not so worried about you know I talk about 99 percenters and one percenters for me getting the training program right is is a 99 percenter um, getting beetroot beetroot juice into the program 
that to me is a one percenter. You can it takes a lot of beetroot juice to add up to add up to a hundred percent, and you, you know you have to get all your training right before you add the beetroot juice on top. Um, and I think for me that's the kind of approach I'd, I'd look at. I, I want to get my training program in place. I want to make sure that. Um, I get my athletes strong, and in general, no matter what sport I, I work with, that that would be uh, an under underpinning quality that I'd be dealing with. Uh, depending on the sport, it might vary, but it'd be I'd be looking at strength. Um, I'd be trying to trying to maximise ways to to get recovery, but I, I wouldn't be over recovering relative to the training we're doing. But probably probably the big one that I'd be looking for is that. That all, all members of the the coaching, medical, and, and performance team were on the same page, and, and that we're driving towards the same goal. And you know, when we when we take when we take all the rubbish out of the job descriptions, you know, the coaches need to win, um, or, or they need to they need to execute their skills. They need the players to execute their skills. The the medical team need to keep injury rates low. The the strength and conditioning ta- staff need to to build physical qualities but if we if we take all that out of the equation we're all on the same page if we focus on performance and if we focus on performance the way we get to that is we, we need to prepare for whatever the game's throwing at us and we need to build to higher chronic loads um, if we if we have that sort of mindset then it actually sets us up to perform well it sets us up to execute the skills and it also sets us up to to minimize our risk of injury um, so if we're on the same page that would be a massive thing is if I'm a if I'm a head of performance I want to be I want to get everyone on the team enjoying coming to work every day um, the staff enjoying coming to work and enjoying each other's company um, and enjoying working with each other uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's sport. It's it's not um, not sheep stations. So like we'd be we'd be working hard to get the best out of the players, but we'd also be enjoying ourselves as we're doing it. The first point you made on speed there. Now, um, a lot of this talks about you know hitting speed, speed volumes over the weeks. Some people are going right down to the nitty gritty and in depth. Where do you sort of fit on? What's required with speed? How much high-speed running is needed, and do we need? And how fast do they need to run, and how regularly? Well, the short answer is I don't know. Um, I, you know, I think I think if we look at um, if we look at a sport like AFL, you need to be able to sprint. Um, so for me, ex- exposing your players to a sprint stimulus when you can is is probably going to prepare them to be able to sprint. Um, the, the trick is when you have when you have less than seven days recovery in between matches, it, it becomes a, a little bit, um, a little bit of a trouble to get that sprint stimulus in. But if you've got seven days either side, let's say you're playing Saturday to Saturday, you, you can you can probably um, sprint three days out from game one and three days into game two, and you've got the recovery that you need. You've got 72 hours recovery either side of each game to sprint. Um, now. Whether whether one sprint is enough, I don't know, um, and whether ten sprints is too much, I don't know. It's probably going to vary from sport to sport, but um, in general, I'll probably look at it in terms of well, what's what's the chronic load requirements that that you're going to have to, um, or what's the loading requirements that you're going to have on a week to week basis, and then I try and match the the chronic load to that. So if you need to to do three hundred meters of sprinting in a week. Um, in a game, pl- plus another 200 metres of um, sprinting in training with whatever tra- 
spraying you're doing, then your chronic load probably needs to, to match that. Um, throughout the week, you need to be able to you may, need to be able to regularly hit 500 meters so that you're not you're not spiking those loads. Um, you know, and you're right. A lot of people are going down the nitty gritty. You know, you have to hit 95 percent, or you have to hit above 85 percent, um, or you have to sprint for at least 40 meters. Or, um, you know, I think it's great if they've worked it out. Um, but I I certainly couldn't say for for certain. All I know is that. Um, in order to in order to do those really high end tasks that you need to do in competition, you pr- you're probably going to have to do it in training to prepare you for it. Based off, I guess, what we're talking about there, and we know your well publicised work around load monitoring, uh, acute chronic workload gets used a lot um, in many different clubs. What's next for you? Where do we where do we see the future research in your space and all your work going in the next five to ten years? Do you think? There's a few different areas where people are moving with the research. Um, you know, there's obviously groups that are that are interested in injury prediction. Um, for me, for me, that's that's not my main area of interest. But um, you know, if if people are interested in that area, that's great. To me, I, I'm I'm more interested in in how do we how do we build robustness. Um, and you know, we we already know that there's certain physical qualities for certain sports that act as moderators of the load injury relationship. So um, if you have that that certain physical quality, then it can decrease your risk of injury at a certain spike in load. And if you don't have it, then you might have an increased risk of injury. Um, so for me, once you know what those moderators are, it allows you to target those deficiencies so you can actually train smarter and harder. It's, um, it's uh, a lot more, it's actually going from uh, focusing on one variable which, which most most people who work in sport would say that um, one variable is is not going to be the holy grail, and I'd agree with that. But um, what the moderators allow you to do is is to take in a number of variables and and factor in a lot of those variables when you're managing your athletes. So to me, that's that's uh, I'm, I'm more interested in that. And, and we we did write a paper on the the unbreakable athlete. You know, is it possible to develop an unbreakable athlete? Um, I don't know. You know, it took us a long time to get that that paper out, um, simply because as authors we couldn't agree on whether it was possible. Um, there was a group of authors there that that sat on the fence. There was a group of authors who said no, it's impossible. And then there was there was probably me and a couple of others that were um, probably looking at at the situation as being glass half full and say, well. I don't know whether it's not, but let's keep fighting hard to see if we can. Um, so I'm 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 really interested in that. If we if we're able to to get to a, a place, and maybe it won't be in my lifetime, but we could get to a place where uh, we have all of these, we have load, and then we have all of these different factors that influence our ability to handle load, and they act like levers. We're either pushing forward or pulling back on a lever, and we get to a point where we understand what those individual moderators are on an individual basis, on a on a, a per, an N of one athlete. Um, if we understand it for one athlete, could we actually develop an unbreakable athlete? And, and once those moderators change on a day-to-day basis, we could put the right interventions in place to keep that person unbreakable at a given load. Um, that to me would be that would be you know, like a, a really cool, a really cool finding. Like and like I said, I don't know whether it'll ever happen in my lifetime, but 
Um, I'll keep pushing for it. I'll keep trying to see if I can. Um, I'm more interested in developing robustness. So I, I think there's a lot more resilience in our athletes than we give them credit for um, and probably a lot more than they realise they've got. So, you know, I'll just keep trying to tease that out of them, I think. is That's probably where my main interest is. The unbreakable athlete. Who have you worked with in your time that you think that springs to mind when we talk about that? It might be one or two athletes that you think that's – that's the best athlete I've worked with, or the closest I've seen to that sort of to that level. Does anyone spring to mind? Yeah, look, Grant, Grant Hackett, without a doubt, Grant Hackett was the um, the toughest, the toughest competitor, the toughest trainer that I've ever seen. Um, yeah, and I I really like Hacky as a as a person. You know, I know I know that he's um, since he's retired, uh, like a lot of people in life, they have, they have challenges. But for me, he hasn't changed at all. He's always been the same person. Um, he's, he's always been, he's always been, um, a a terrific, terrific gentleman out of the pool, but he's, uh, in, in the water, he was as strong and as tough as they come. He, he, and the thing he used to talk a lot about was the difference between good pain and bad pain that, that he, he worked out really early. Um, the difference between good pain and bad pain, and um, and there were some some sessions where he could feel the pain, and he would actually go looking for that pain, and he would he would actually force himself to go deeper into the pit um, because he was he was thriving on that pain. Um, there's a there's a lot of athletes who never ever learn that part of it. They never ever learn that. Um, that sensation of pain, you can actually work your way through it. You can, if you can accept it, you can actually take your body into places um, that you you previously couldn't. And he he worked that out. He was he that mental aspect of training he understood really well. So he he for me he was uh, champion athlete, outstanding trainer, and and the the rewards he got in the pool he thoroughly deserved them because he worked really hard for him. Yeah, that's a great insight into uh, someone who was obviously the top of his game for so long. And, uh, yeah, as you said at the start, I think uh, you always see those athletes that just come out of nowhere and you think, geez, they've, they've just uh, come out of nowhere, they're fantastic, but you don't get to see all the hard work that they put in. Speaking of hard work, though, you've done obviously a lot of work in the space of athlete monitoring and workload and it's sort of toured the world talking about it but there are many other people who have done a lot of work in that space who bring out some fantastic research and looking at some great things who are some other sort of practitioners and researchers that you think we should keep an eye out for read their stuff um, and are doing some great work in that space if you look at the the research that's been done in in load and um, you know train load and injury over the last 20 years it's it's grown exponentially from about five papers in 2000 to you know 150 in 2018 so um you know it's it's really grown like i i um i enjoy my interactions with um with blanche peter blanche i enjoy the fact that he's he's had a foot in both both camps in terms of being um being at the coalface for a long long period of time but he's also worn a research hat and and i like the fact that he's evolved from his thinking of um where he was as a phys- uh, physiotherapist a while ago where they used to measure joint angles and and think they had the answer there and and, and then he he sort of changed his view that load is probably more important i really enjoyed working with um billy hewlin um i think he does i think he's a um a, a really um 
humble, a really humble person, and I think he's a very, very good scientist. He, and he, I think he's a very good practitioner as well. Um, uh, Shane Malone's doing some great work over in Ireland, and, and Johan Vint in in um, Vancouver. Like there's just, and there, there's a, you know, there, a lot of those guys are either finishing their PhDs or, or on in the process of, of finishing their PhDs or just finished. Um, so they've got a, you know, huge, huge career ahead of them. And again, um, there, there's a lot of really good people in the uk so um whenever i whenever i or uk and the states and even australia when I, whenever i mention a single person i know that i'm going to neglect a hundred other really good scientists so um you know in general what i what i'd say is if you if you're in this area it's a, it's a great time to be in it um just just keep working hard at it and and keep being humble about the work you do and um just, just keep trying to make a difference. You know, whether you've been in it for fifty years or been in it for fifty minutes, just, just try and just keep working away at it and keep trying to make a difference for your athletes. Because um, um, in the in the long term, if we all if we're all working towards that uh, positive game for the athletes, then you know they're going to they're going to reap the benefits down the track. Some good names there. I had the pleasure of listening to Billy Hewlin on the weekend at, at our course. Just gone actually in Sydney in the high performance rehab and was lucky enough to work with Peter Blanche a few years ago. So learned a lot from uh, both those guys. A little bit about um, you personally, mate. I guess who a couple of the biggest influences on your career to to get you to the point you are now. You know, really, really early on, I my my dad was a was a great great influence on me. There's things that that I've been able to to achieve in my professional life that that have absolutely nothing to do with training and, and whatever else but I can tie back to things that I learned from my dad and and equally my mum has, has been a great great influence you know I learned I learned a lot about working through adversity from her and, and coming out the other side so you know early on I think they were great great influences great role models um, in terms of professional people in the same career you know I, I, looking back there was a lot of people through your career, it helps if you've got people other than your your family, who who believe in what you're doing. Um, so so different people along the way. David Jenkins from from UQ, he's been a he was a great mentor for for 25 years. But um, but you know early on he was a mentor, and now I'm really lucky to consider him a, a great friend. And you know there's there's other people you know like I, I enjoy I enjoy my time with um, with Peter Blanche. I enjoy I don't agree with what he says all of the time, but he generally he's generally pretty honest with me, um, and we he makes me angry at times. Uh, but when I walk away and, and have a think about it, um, I, I won't say he's right, but I'll just say he um, he makes me think about think about things a little bit differently. So um, he's he's been a good leveler as well at times. You know, like you you find out um, over time, you know, people come and go into your life, but you find out who. Who your friends are and and who are the ones that that are only there for a short time. But before we leave, I I guess I always like to ask, who do you recommend that we uh, chat to on one of our future podcasts? You want to get Jeremy Battle from the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, he's a he's a really he's a really great guy, solid in what he does in his programming, and he's he's a pretty even fella as well not too many highs not too many lows he's he's a pretty stable guy so um in, in professional sport he's kind of a unique person so i think i think he'd be good um there's a there's a whole heap of others that you could grab um 
Simon Kearney from from St Kilda is another good one that you'd you'd get a lot of practical insights from as well. But I'd I'd start with Jeremy. I think he's a he's a, a really terrific guy that you'll I think your listeners will will really enjoy listening to. Thanks again for your time, Tim. It's been uh, fantastic to have you on board, and uh, it's been great having you as a past presenter for the Sports Map. So it's been great to sort of reconnect and uh, and chat here. But I'm sure our listeners can always. Contact you via per gabbitperformance.com uh, and uh, either chat to you and sort of get you out to do some workshops and talks in the short term. That's probably the best medium, would you say? Yeah, that's that's probably as good as, as, as any. Go to, go to the website and we've got a, an email address there and um, uh, generally generally get, we get back in touch pretty quickly. So, um, yeah, always, always happy to help anyone I can. Beautiful. Well, we'll leave it there tonight, Tim. So thanks very much for your time and um, chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.